Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Josh Cad read our scripture for today, and it might have jutted out for us in this epiphany season uh, to, to, to be thrust headlong from rest into stories of exorcisms. We don't exactly know what to do with that, do we? Jesus shows up in church, so to speak, and there are immediately interruptions. First, it's actually Jesus's interruption. It's a mild interruption of his authority breaking into their regularly scheduled programming. It says he teaches, quote, not like the legal experts, the experts of God's law. And then suddenly, Mark's gospel has a lot of suddenlies, like ands and suddenlies. It's, it's, he's, he's a sort of director uh, that when he directs the gospel scene, it always features these elusive jump cuts and frenetic camera work to communicate the urgency and inbreaking of God's kingdom into God's world. And then suddenly we have this interruption of a person possessed with a demon screaming out. That was like the cue for someone to start screaming. (laughs) I noticed, though, in this, there isn't any indication that this person with the demon is new or a visitor or that they don't recognize him. There isn't any stage direction that he, like, dramatically shows up. For all we know, this guy has a regular pew. He's a known face. He's well embedded in the worship life of the synagogue. They're gathering. So maybe this place of order, this place of decorum and cleanliness, place of, for them, Saturday, for us, Sunday, best, like Justin's shirt. Maybe this tidy holy place was always a little messier than they cared to admit or to acknowledge. Maybe all of our hearts and all of our lives and all of our habits always are a little messier than we care to acknowledge or admit. So this demon-possessed man opens his mouth and he starts to spit a lot of truth, actually. He says, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. So why does Jesus silence him? What happened to come out of this guy? Like, like, how are the people around him taking what is coming out of this guy? What is it about Jesus's presence that causes this conflict? What is going on here? When we read passages like this, sometimes it's just good to just like dump the bag of our questions out on the table and sort around. That's one way also to kind of slow down the mark and roll of things, you know. After the demon leaves this man, Jesus says silence and things calm down. But it says everyone is shaken. I almost imagine this like Jesus threw a rock into a lake and all the ripples start to resound and reverberate outward. The verdict? What's this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. 
That's kind of curious too. Because the new teaching was in fact neither that new nor much of a teaching. (laughs) Jesus was simply healing on the Sabbath. This is kind of gray territory for people trying really hard to obey the directive not to do work on God's day of rest. But it's you can also sense this gathering is pretty grateful that Jesus just went ahead and did this. This is like clean up on aisle two sort of thing. It is Jesus's action of exorcism, of pacification that speaks loudest of his authority. Louder even than what prior, like previously had come out of his mouth. Makes me want to paraphrase like an often quoted, but I have no idea who to attribute line. Jesus um, models, he embodies, show authority at all times when necessary. Use words, right? You see, one with authority, like Jesus, is tapped into authorial intent, or my literature people, right? He knows what the author, what God wants, and, and he helps to make it happen in real time. So many well-intended and religiously-minded folk get hung up trying to discern this and making and keeping rules that sometimes obscure the meaning or the heart. But Jesus, the word made flesh, infleshes God's words with action. I think this is good for us to remember, like in a time like ours where authority is either like a dirty word or like worthy of skepticism, Jesus shows that authority is, is worn before it is claimed or, or wielded. And when it is wielded, it has to be wielded for hope and healing and hospitality. We talk a lot about that, not for coercion or shame. And so kind of another sidebar here. If this was a healing, this is kind of a violent act of healing that Jesus performs on this man. It makes us uncomfortable to think about and to talk about exorcism. We, we have all these, this is one of those imaginative spaces where we have so much tied up in this. We have like heads spinning around and projectile vomit and all of this stuff happening when we think about exorcisms. It feels like it should be reserved for horror movies or maybe it only happens in third world countries where definitely way too grown up or way too mature or way too sophisticated to expect or to believe things like that. But what about the ways that we look around and we see people who are trapped, who are entranced, who are taken by things that are bigger than them and beyond them? outside of them? What do we do when we can't recognize the ways that we fall into that? That we're lured or numbed or occupied? This is a most common arena when we talk about things like this are are areas of addiction, right? First you do an activity or a substance and then it starts to do you. But I think this is also like how most garden variety powers and principalities work. Do we know that term powers and principalities? These these offices, these these, um, 
these responsibilities, these titles, these social locations, these sites of vested authority that, that give power, but often in the process dehumanize. We, we see this in, in Mark's story. This man um, uh, refers to himself as us because his agency has been, has been squashed. And so there's all the things inside of him that are coming out, right? More time and energy and resources with these powers and these principalities can wind up going into maintaining appearances or sustaining systems than, than flourishing people. Principalities and powers like to muzzle dissent also. And I think that's something having to do with Jesus' silence. He's modeling a, a, or maybe returning volley of the way that this, these, this demon is silencing the man and instead creating new speech. And, and when there is speech, there's often this white blood cellular response whenever there is an interruption. We see that with this man convulsing. Read the Gospels now with an eye towards these systems that are happening, whether they're demonic or economic or religious or political arrangements, and, and note how Jesus walks around interrupting them. Maybe sometimes subtly. Maybe sometimes you'll find Jesus flipping over tables, less subtle. <laughs> but you'll have a key lens to view how Jesus interacts with both elites and the disinherited. I, I recently came across a phrase that I feel a little out on a limb with this, but I, I think it's helpful. If it's not helpful, just forget it. Um, it's a phrase that, it, it's one of those phrases that's just like sticky, and it's like been gnawing in the back of my mind, uh, that makes sense of some of this phenomena for us in an age of AI. I'm not even going to pretend like this is an anachronistic for Jesus, right? And also about what is needed for an interruption. Hang in there. It's a doozy. Robot soft exorcism. Robot soft exorcism. Right? Here's a sci-fi paperback. The, the one on the left is a real book. The one on the right is not a real book. It comes from David Dark, who's like an author and provocateur, and he coined the phrase about this need for interruption and exodus come out, right? He considers the image of a human being who willingly or maybe even unknowingly climbs into a robot. Raise your hand if you've ever climbed into a robot. Probably not that many, probably all of us actually, right? This could be through the power of a position or a title or a platform. I'm in a robot right now at this pulpit. And I can choose to let this robot occupy me and amplify me and maybe even take over where I can choose and I'll need help to remain soft and human and not let this robot take over. This is not just reserved, these robots, for like the President of the United States. So that's a big robot and a powerful one. But also, like, the president of the kindergarten carpool is a robot. <laughs> Beware. Let those with ears. <laughs> David Dark says, um, we become what we normalize, 
And then this means we also all have our robots, right? In occupying these robots, these things that are extensions or amplifications of our power and our desires, sometimes it can start to become a little confusing where we end and where the robot begins or how to stop or how to slow it. This is like the plot of every future-oriented horror movie, right? This is what most of us are afraid about AI, is that it's just going to take us over, right? But that's where the exorcism comes in. Are, are you all still with me here? Yeah. <laughs> this exorcism has to happen, but it's also got to be soft. It's got to correspond to the humanity that has been taken up in the machinery. There has to be a, a neighborly address and a call back to being the sons and the daughters of God who have forgotten our belovedness and instead have settled for hard and cold and tasteless and smellless and smooth and efficient and heartless. A little less te technological, this is also kind of the plot of Wizard of Oz with the Tin Man, right? <clears throat> And so the sneakiest robots are the ones that are designed to look and feel human. They seem really like non-intrusive, maybe even kind of morally good. These are the ones that it's hard to quit. These are the demons that call us to justify whatever means to our chosen ends. And we look around and we see these robots everywhere, just bumping up against each other fortifying opposition against each other and selecting outrageous warrior politicians to spar for ideologies, to harden defenses and borders and tamp down workers and ramp up violence and all the perceived stakes. And when this happens, robots simplify. So everything becomes a nail and we only have a hammer. That's how robots work. It's not soft at all. So how do we fix this? How do we jump the tracks? How do we hit the eject button on the robot? I'm gonna to switch to metaphors. Paul does this all the time, it's great. Just mix metaphors, just go somewhere else. I found this poem called The Exorcism. My, my search history is wild. <laughs> Bear with me. Joyce uh, uh, Sutfen wrote this, this poem and, and it's, it's wild and it's visceral and it's so good she says uh, she uses instead the imagery exorcism as having a tooth pulled by a string she says it was homemade and primitive like pulling a tooth with a string and a slamming door like taking out an appendix by kerosene light where dogs wandered in and out in the dirt floor's room Nothing for the pain that everyone wanted to examine the twisted heart they thought they could just shout back into place. So a tooth that needs to come out is how the poet describes the feeling of being exercised. That cavity that exposes a nerve in need of a root canal. And then the hackles and the jolts and the defense mechanisms that fly into duty when we start to mess with that. How dare they? Don't they know that this is my life? They need to butt out of how I spend my paycheck, 
where I get my news, how I raise my kids, who I sleep with, what lives I think matter most, what I eat, and how much of my, delight, my life I devote in front of a screen. How dare they? Who do they think they are? Obviously, I want things to be my way. That's a tricky thing. No one ever does things intentionally poorly, right? Like, we all arrange our lives in ways that we actually think are good or wise most of the time, unless we're just exhausted and we just do whatever. Say, nobody ever chooses to be wrong on purpose. And what if you're wrong? Ever thought about that? Maybe this tooth isn't that bad after all, and I'll just get used to it. Little flare-up will die down. The nerves will dull. Or when this happens, you might rise up and say, mind your business. <laughs> this is the chorus of accusation and sensitivity as Jesus travels Capernaum and begins his ministry of robot deprogramming and tooth extraction, right? We often breeze through these stories as we leave this first section and head towards a more familiar and believable area dealing with physical healing. But friends, Jesus, when he calls this demon out of this man, Jesus is minding his own business. This is like Jesus minding the family business. <laughs> this is the family business, the care of God of all that is not God. So Jesus comes and he sets up shop to heal and to make whole and to bear witness to the action of grace and territory largely held by the devil. This is occupied territory and occupied territory doesn't easily cede without a fight. So Mark tells this apocalyptic gospel, this gospel of unveiling. And it's read during this time of epiphany, which is a time of illumination, of uncovering, of unmasking, of naming these robots and naming the ways that God's good creation is being misused and distorted or held by counterfeits or leveraged against flourishing. So while it might even hurt, epiphany means paying attention paying attention to these interruptions, being opened up to healing, even if it hurts a little bit. It's important to remember this when it comes to both robots and root canals, that Jesus has not come to destroy us. Do you notice that's what the, the man said when, when possessed by demons? He's come to destroy us. Sometimes when Jesus starts to mess with us or when we encounter Jesus, Sometimes it feels like he's messing with us too much and he's come to destroy us. I actually like that about myself. Don't mess with that, Jesus. But in Jesus' presence, the evil spirits take notice and the hackles raise, even on good church folk, because if nothing is done, it just might be terminal. Jesus is inviting us to learn more about ourselves than we might not yet already know. It makes me wonder where our own sensitivities are, like collectively, but also individually. What are those exposed nerves that you don't let anyone come near, like that you just kind of nurse that ache? 
where have we been sitting inside of these robots so long that our actual muscles start to atrophy and we start to merge our flesh into the machinery? Where do we fear being interrupted? Where do we put like so many barriers and so much buffer in our lives that we couldn't possibly be interrupted by something new? It makes me wonder where we isolate, where we insulate. It makes me wonder what robots we climb into and how we're participating in our own hardening instead of staying soft. It makes me wonder what we need to unlearn and what we need help from God's spirit and from each other to remember. Memory is, is so key. Memory is so tied to these senses and robots have sensors, not senses. We need to remember about ourselves, about our neighbors, about God. When, when great act, weekly act, is remembering around this table, remembering who Christ is and what God has done for us, how the Spirit is renewing us and how we are being remembered as Jesus' body, put together different parts of one body. So by remembering, we also remember how things really are. We can lean into Jesus' authority. We can, we can trust in his deep knowledge of how things are and how they should work. We can participate in, in Jesus' deep vision to see inside of the most hardened robots to the soft humanity that's been buried or trapped. And we can develop this deep imagination for something different. Jesus isn't building robots. Um, and it, it reminds me of Dallas Willard has uh, a, a quip. He says, Jesus is actually looking for people he can trust with his power. Jesus is actually looking for people he can trust with his power. So the, the powerful ro- robots that sometimes we use as shortcuts or, or, uh, or, or to get more things done faster for efficiency... The, the, the power is not the thing, it's, it's the means. And, and Jesus is actually trying to, to heal us and restore us and grow us and build us into the sort of people who can be trusted with God's immense and endless power. Power is not the problem. It is the exercise of it in softness, care, and humility, which is central to responding to Jesus' authority with our discipleship, with our lives, with everything we have and are. So friends, this is good news. Jesus wants to exercise us. (laughs) That's good news. Jesus wants to save us from the demonic, from systems, from sin, from ourselves, And Jesus wants to call us into new and everlasting life that has already begun. That's the cool thing about everlasting life is that it has already begun. (laughs) And Jesus also wants to interrupt our dehumanizing loops, the things that make us less because with God, he's always making us more. Jesus wants to interrupt our delusions of grandeur and replace them with our deep belovedness. calls out to us and and invites us to make a home and to find a family in a place, in this place, amongst 
image-made siblings, not robots, around Christ's table. We just need to open ourselves up to this healing. We need to walk in this newness of life. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. Can you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for these challenging words, for, um, for your spirit that opens our eyes and hearts to new data about ourselves in our world. Uh, give us courage uh, to keep these apertures of our heart open, um, not to close down or shutter. Lord, uh, give us wisdom and warmth and softness um, as we uh, speak your goodness into each other's lives and into the lives of our neighbors. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.